Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that as we think about your words written down long ago by the Apostle Paul, that you would open our hearts to receive your truth, that you would enable us to believe them, to live by them, and in them, Lord, to catch a glimpse again of the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask it for his sake. Amen. I remember when I was young, or younger, depending on your perspective, but uh, I remember when I was young, I still have this memory of sitting at a petrol station and talking with my parents about how people, how you verify uh, the authenticity of a banknote. Back in those days, uh, you used to be able to hold a banknote up to the light and there was a kind of a thin strip down through the middle of it. Uh, I think there were some other things as well. I still remember sitting there, you know, holding these banknotes up to the light uh, and looking to test whether it was real or whether it was a counterfeit. And after that, every time someone gave me a new banknote, I'd hold it up to the light to see whether or not it was the genuine article. I don't think uh, I wanted to make sure that it was real. I think more than anything, I actually wanted to find a fake one. But I thought that would be cooler, perhaps. It's not a small denomination note, perhaps. But uh, I always thought that would be cooler to find a fake than to find the real deal. But the thing about a fake banknote is that a good fake, a good counterfeit, looks almost as genuine, doesn't it, as the real deal. And it's not until you look more deeply, it's not until you hold it up to the light that actually you can tell which one's real and which one's fake. And it's much the same in truth with the Christian life. There can be two people, both who kind of on the surface of it look the same, they look identical. But one's a counterfeit and one's the real deal. And it's not until you look more deeply, it's not until you hold it up to the light that you begin to realise which one is the real one and which one, like the banknote, is a worthless scrap of paper. They look the same, but underneath they're quite different. And the shocking reality I think that Paul deals with here in this passage is not that they look the same to other people, but that they look the same to us. That is, we can't distinguish ourselves easily from what is real and what is counterfeit. We need to look more deeply at ourselves than what is on the surface. Well, that's the main thrust of what Paul is doing here at the end of this letter of 2 Corinthians. It's not until we get to the end that the purpose of this whole letter becomes clear. Paul was planning to come on a, on a visit, to, to visit the Corinthian church. It was his third visit and he's not looking forward to going. I don't know if you've ever had one of those trips where uh, the trip is planned but you really don't want to get there. And the reason Paul didn't want to get there is because he thought it, there would be a confrontation. 
He didn't know what he'd find when he, got, when, he, when he finally got to Corinth. It could turn out well, he could get there and it could be fantastic, or he could get there and it could all go very, very sour. Paul's fear, he says, is that when he comes, he might find that the Corinthians aren't following Christ and his fear is that he'll have to confront their sin. So in chapter 12, verse 20, he says, For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, as I want you to be and you may not find me as, I, as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. He's afraid of their spiritual condition. And so he wants them to test themselves and to sort themselves out before he gets there. He says in chapter 13 verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? This is the punchline of the letter. This is what it's all about. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, where are you guys actually at? Because from where I'm standing, it doesn't look that great. He calls on them to test themselves and to examine themselves because the danger is that they might be counterfeits. Examine yourselves doesn't just mean to take a quick look. It means to test something through a trial. You might think of, you know, examination, putting something under a microscope. You know, CSI Miami with the uh, fluorescent lights not fluorescent, the UV lights, you know, finding all the blood spatter. It's a kind of word used in the Bible to describe God testing Israel in the desert for 40 years. He tested them to know whether or not they would trust him. Uh, It's the same uh, word that's used to refer to Jesus' 40 days of testing in the wilderness by Satan. Or you might think of the testing of Abraham. Would he trust God? Or the testing of Job. Would he reject God? So too, the expression test yourselves refers to an intense process. Peter uses the same word uh, in his first letter to talk about testing the genuineness of of our faith like you test gold with fire. In other words, this testing process is hard work. It might be long, 40 years in the desert, 40 days in the wilderness. And it will be intense, tested by fire. God's not asking us to to do something that's only going to take a few minutes. But it could be very long and it could be very painful. I knew a person who set to examine themselves in the light of the Bible. They said, God, please help me to know where I'm at. It took them 18 months to two years. 
to search out their heart and to know where they stood with God. Well, I wonder if you've ever tested yourself or whether, like the Corinthians, maybe you've just presumed to be in the faith. Maybe you just hope for the best. You're not really sure, but you try not to think too much about it in case you find something that you don't like. Perhaps you've done the test, but it's been more like the pop quiz than the end of your exams. Paul says, God says, test yourselves and examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. But how do you do that? What do you look for? How do you know if you're in the faith or out of the faith? Paul says that the evidence is Christ is in you unless you fail the test. So the test is not, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Have I kind of made this grade? That's not the test. The test is, is Christ at work in me? Is there evidence that Christ is powerfully changing and reshaping my life. You see, the difference between those two questions is crucial. If the test is, am I doing enough? Have I made the grade? Then the remedy to failing the test is, I need to do more. If the test is, is Christ powerfully at work in me? Then the remedy cannot be, I need to do more. The remedy has to be fleeing to Christ. We can't make Christ work powerfully in us by doing things. All we can do is run to him and embrace him and say, you've got to, you've got to save me, rescue me and work in me. God calls us to test and examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith, to see whether Christ is really at work in us. Well, what does that look like? What are the evidences that Christ is or isn't at work in us. Well, Paul gives a number of evidences of both those things, that Christ is not at work in us or that Christ is at work in us. We'll start with the, the, the things that he says are signs, are markers of people who are not converted, people who don't know Christ, who are not in the faith. He says at the end of chapter 12, he gives a list in verse 20 of the kinds of things that he fears he might find in the Corinthians when he gets there. He says, I'm afraid that when I come I may not find you as I want you to be and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. What are evidences of an unconverted life, of a person who's not in the faith, of a counterfeit? Well, quarrelling. Are you the kind of person who's constantly getting into bitter arguments and bitter disputes? Are you a quarrelsome person? Jealousy, says Paul. Are you the kind of person who's consumed by jealousy? You can never be happy when somebody else succeeds. And in fact, when someone else does succeed, inevitably you are either 
angry or horribly depressed. Outbursts of anger. Do you find yourself constantly flying off the handle? Yes, there is a time to be angry. Yes, there is a right kind of anger according to the Bible. But is anger your kind of default style, your default position? Factions, probably best understood as a kind of a self-seeking attitude. Are you the kind of person whose first question is always, what will I get out of this? How will it suit me? Or do you ask, how will this exalt God? How will this serve my neighbour? Slander and gossip. Are you the kind of person who publicly tears people down? That's your great joy in life, is to see somebody else belittled. And gossip is kind of the more surreptitious version of that, where you don't do it publicly, but you just whisper away behind their back so that people love you instead of loving that other person. Arrogance. The great test of arrogance is whether your sense of superiority keeps you from interacting with people. Well, I won't have anything to do with that person because they're beneath me. They're too stupid. They're too plain. They're too uninteresting. Disorder. Probably a better word would be anti-authoritarian. That is, are you the kind of person who constantly works to undermine the authority of people whom God has put in authority over you? Are you the kind of person who can't submit to someone else's authority? You're fiercely independent and every time someone says, dares to try and impose an idea on you, you say, I won't put up with this. The disordered person, the disorderly person, is the kind of person whose sentences always begin with, what right do you have to tell me? It's the plague which besets our country, I think. What right do you have to tell me what to do? You're just the government, or the police, or my boss. Paul goes on in verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. The last three marks of the unconverted life are of a piece. Impurity, sexual sin, debauchery are all kind of Sexual sins are all of a sexual nature. They cover sexual sin, if you like, in its diversity. Adultery, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, porn, lust. Paul says that people who indulge in those things don't know God. 
Significantly, what Paul is concerned about is not merely that he might find those sins in the church, but that he might find them accepted and unrepented of. So some people will hear this list and think to themselves, that's me. I'm a selfish person. I'm a proud person. I'm an impure person. And yet at the same person, at the same time, that person will think, but I don't want to live like this. Dear God, please rescue me from my wretched sin. Other people will hear this list and think to themselves, I am selfish, but you know, I'm not as bad as I could be. You know, I know other people who are more selfish. And I am proud, but I'm not as proud as Bob. You know, Bob is so proud. And I am impure, but you know, I've been doing better for the last few weeks. I feel as though I'm making progress. I must be a Christian. And God says, you are no such thing. You've missed the gospel. So it's not about how we measure up compared to others. And it's not about how recent our sin has been or how long ago it was, as though time kind of covers sin over. It's not about that. The great evidence of Christ at work in us is that we respond to sin with the gospel. I am a sinner. God, forgive me. Do you deal with sin by rejecting it, denying it? No, it's not as bad as it could be. Or by confessing it and calling on Jesus to deliver you from it? The first great evidence that Christ is in you is that you deal with sin by dealing with Jesus. The second great evidence evidence that Christ is in you is that as you deal with Christ, as you deal with sin by dealing with Christ, that sin dies. So if Christ is at work in us, then these this list of sins that Paul has given us, those sins will be losing their grip. We will be less selfish than we were 20 years ago, less impure, less proud. If you're exactly the same today as you were 20 years ago, then there's no reason to believe that Christ is at work in you. Can you imagine that the power of the resurrected Christ could be working away at you for 20 years and you're still the same bitter, angry, quarrelsome person that you were 20 years ago. Is Christ so powerless? Is the resurrection so empty? Paul fears that when he comes to the Corinthian church, he might find them the same as they've always been. Their lives marred by the same sins, 
quarrelling, jealousy, anger, slander, gossip and sexual immorality. The first great evidence that Christ is in you is that we deal with sin by dealing with Christ. The second great evidence is that as we deal with sin and deal with Christ, our sin dies. Paul goes on to mention some more positive marks of genuine faith. So we've thought a lot about what shouldn't be there. Sometimes it's helpful to to look for what should be there. Sometimes focusing on all the things that ought not to be there, can cloud us to the positive work that God is doing. So Paul lists a few marks of the converted life. First of all, in verse 9 he says, We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. A better word than perfection uh, is the word maturity. It's the same word that Paul uses in verse 11 of chapter 12 when he says, aim for for perfection or aim for maturity. What is a mark of Christ at work in us? It's growing maturity in the faith. So are there signs in your life of a maturing faith? Do you trust God more now than you did before? You used to be anxious, but now... You commit things to God in prayer and you trust him. You trust God to forgive you. So when you confess your sins, you now believe much more naturally that they are forgiven. Rather than hanging on to them for week after week and month after month. Do you love God more now than you did before. You used to love yourself more than God. And the great joys in your life were when you served yourself, when you bought yourself a present, when you treated yourself to something. But now actually the great joy in life is when you serve God. And it brings a joy that just explodes those other things into kind of passing fads. Do you love other Christians more than you did before? You used to find yourself so impatient with other people. You used to find people boring and annoying. You used to find that you had nothing in common with them. But now you love them deeply. And you don't even care that actually you have no common interests apart from the gospel. And you don't even care that this person is 40 years older than you. No, because you love each other in the gospel. You meet people at a Christian event and you think to yourself, we have a bond. And I love this person who I've only just met. Because God is at work in you. One of the great marks of Christ at work in us is growing maturity in the gospel. Paul also says in verse 11, be of one mind. Another mark of Christ at work in us is like-mindedness, which doesn't mean that we always agree on everything, 
green is everyone's favourite colour or blue or something like that. But if there is one Christ at work in all of us, then we ought to expect that there's some kind of uniformity of vision. That there are lots of things that we agree on. The idea goes hand in glove with Paul's command to live in peace. That is, people in whom Christ is at work are peaceful people. Rather than division, they bring peace. Rather than vicious argument, they bring harmony. Rather than quarrels and factions, they bring encouragement and gentle rebuke. Think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called sons of God. And we could go on. You could go back through the whole letter of 2 Corinthians and look for the marks that Paul gives of genuine conversion. You see, because he's been doing that the whole way along. All these contrasts have been about true and false Christianity in some ways. Are we people in whom the comfort of God overflows from our sufferings into the lives of others? Are we people who uh, confront and also forgive sin? Are we people led in triumphal processions, slaves of Christ, going wherever Christ leads us, making the gospel known? Are we people who die to ourselves so that others can find life in Christ? Are we people who are passing through this world and longing for a heavenly country? Are we people yoked together with unbelievers? Or are we people who are set apart for the service of God? Are we people who open our hearts wide to receive the ministry of the people whom God has sent to us? Are we people who have become poor so that others might become rich? Are we people who long for powerful leaders and powerful people? Or are we people who long for a powerful God? Are we people who are content to be weak so that God's power might be manifest in our weakness? God says to you and to me, he says, test and examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Not to see if you're doing enough, but to see whether Christ is really at work in you. Please do that. Please go home and pray, Lord, help me to know whether I'm in the faith. Help me to see the signs of genuine belief. It will be scary and hard. Let me promise you that. But it is so important. Some of you will have always doubted that you belong to Christ. There's nothing worse, I think, than spending someone time with someone who's on the edge of death, who has no assurance that they belong to Christ. They've spent their life in a church and they still don't know 
whether they are a Christian or not. Some of you will have doubted for a long time that you belong to Christ and you'll go home and you'll examine yourselves and you'll test yourselves and you'll discover that Christ is at work in you. And it will lead you to a new assurance and a new joy, a joy you've never had. Because you'll say to yourself, I belong to Christ and nothing can pluck me out of his hands. And it would lead you to praise of God and wonder that God should make you a new person, that he should join you with Christ. Some people will have doubted forever and they'll test and examine and they'll discover that they do belong to Christ. Some of you may already know, you may already have that assurance, but you'll test and examine again and again you'll find the truth that Christ is at work in you and again you'll find that joy. Some of you will test and examine yourselves and perhaps you'll discover that even though all your life you've imagined yourself to be a good Christian, you'll discover that actually there's not much evidence that that's true. There's no evidence that Christ is at work in you. If that's you, then don't despair, but run to Jesus. Get on your knees and ask Christ to save you and to be at work in you. You see, the point, the point of examining and testing is so that you can discover that you've always been deceived and so that you can run to Christ. Plead with Christ. Seek Christ. Keep knocking on the door that he would be at work in you. And even if you have to spend the rest of your life pleading and knocking and seeking, know that God will never turn away somebody who comes to their knees, comes on their knees to Jesus. But perhaps the most disturbing category, I think, of people are those who fail the test who set themselves to examine themselves and test themselves and yet who convince themselves as they go along that everything's okay. See, the temptation of examining ourselves is that we want to paper over the cracks. You flatter yourself that maybe if you don't admit the reality to God, he won't notice. Or maybe if I don't admit to myself that those sins are really in full blossom in my life, maybe God won't know. It really is, isn't it, just like somebody who's trying to restore a house by wallpapering over the structural problems. To pretend you pass when you fail is not the gospel. It's a lie. 
It's a vain hope to think that the fig leaves that we sow together can cover our shame and fool God. But the truth of the gospel is that we don't have anything to be ashamed of in bearing our sins and carrying it to Christ. We can say to God, God, I'm a hopeless fraud. For 20 years I've been sitting in church. For 20 years I've been thinking that I was a Christian. But you know what? I think that's all been a lie. Please forgive me. There's no shame in that. Because that's the reality of the gospel. Isn't it? We come with nothing. And God takes us and receives us and nails our hypocrisy to the cross and bears our shame and raises us to new life. Paul feared that when he came to visit the Corinthians, he might not find them as he hoped. What will Jesus find when he comes to our church? What will Jesus find when he comes to you? Examine yourselves, says Paul. Test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Don't you realise that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your words are sent to warn us before it's too late. Help us to hear your words, to receive your warning, to take upon us your call to test and to examine. Lord, we pray that we won't be like those people that Jesus talks about, who are afraid to come into the light for fear that their deeds might be exposed. Oh Lord, we ask that we will be those who step boldly into the light, that we might be seen for what we are, hopeless sinners, and so that it might be seen that what has been done in us has been done by God. Lord, we pray for those who in testing find themselves to have been lifelong hypocrites. Lord, we ask that you would draw them to the cross and to Christ and that in him they would find life and hope and peace. Lord, we pray for those who might be tempted to deny the reality of their hypocrisy and sin and ask, Lord, that you would help through your spirit to expose their lives and to draw them to Christ. And, Lord, for those of us who test ourselves and examine ourselves, and find the evidence of Christ at work in us. 
Lord, we pray that we will be filled with that inexpressible and glorious joy because we are receiving the salvation of our souls for which we wait in eager anticipation. Amen.